Welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today is one of the authors of the paper, Gastric Residual Volume in Critically Ill Patients, A Dead Marker or Still Alive. This is published in the February 2015 issue of NCP. I'm pleased today to introduce Dr. Gunnar Elkas from the Department of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care Medicine at the University Medical Center in Kiel, Germany. Thank you, Dr. Elka, for joining me today. Your paper in NCP addresses a very controversial topic about whether or not gastric residual volume should be monitored in patients who receive gastric tube feeding. So I'd like to explore some of those concepts from your paper in our discussion today. So first, I'd like to start by asking Dr. Elka if you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share. Well... Actually, I have no disclosures related to this current work, but outside of this work, I've received travel expenses and speaker honoraria from Fresenius Carby, Germany, Abbott Nutrition, and B. Brown Melsungen. Thank you. When I was reading through your paper, in the introduction, you talked about how the GI tract is the first to be affected by shock and sometimes the last to recover. So can you explain to our listeners why that occurs and what major factors contribute to GI dysfunction in our critically ill patients? Yes, so the pathophysiology of GI dysfunction is truly multifactorial and complex involving inadequate tissue perfusion and secretion, dysmotility as well as dysregulated intestinal microbiota and host immune interaction. So the impairment of the gastrointestinal tract is thought to play a central role in the pathogenesis of infection and sepsis and even the failure of other distant organs. And numerous observations in critically ill patients such as hemorrhagic shock, trauma, and burnt patients suggest that the visceral blood flow decreases early in spite of a normal global cardiac output leading to a so-called regional shock of the gastrointestinal tract. And thus, the GI tract has to be considered as a predominant and susceptible firstly affected organ from a severe insult as well as a motor of organ dysfunction as it is a region of ischemia reperfusion with developing reactive oxygen species formation, mediator generation, leukocyte priming, which was early described, for instance, by Deitch and uh, colleagues. And if presence in its severest form, GI organ dysfunction is often the last to be fully recovered as compared to other organs. And with respect to major other factors contributing to GI dysfunction, there are so-called intrinsic factors contributing to GI dysfunction, which are the dysregulation of GI hormones, which are particularly important, especially for slow gastric emptying. And so-called extrinsic factors, including what co-medications the patient is using, electrolyte abnormalities, and of course, the way the patient is being fed. You also mentioned in your paper that the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine Working Group on Abdominal Problems has developed a consensus definition of GI dysfunction. 
So what defines those GI injury grades one to four, and how can those classifications help us as nutrition support practitioners provide enteral nutrition to our critically ill patients? Yes, so these definitions were actually made by this group in order to have a more consistent clinical communication on this topic because so far different definitions for separate GI symptoms are used and we still have a lack of markers for the measurement of GI function which has suppressed studies in this field as well as the assessment of GI dysfunction as an organ failure. So this working group has defined so-called acute GI injury as a malfunctioning of the GI tract in critically ill patients due to their acute illness. And according to the severity, the following grades of the abbreviated term AJI can be distinguished in grades 1 to 4, grade 1 consisting of an increased risk of developing GI dysfunction or failure, so-called term self-limiting condition. Grade 2 is a condition that requires interventions. Grade 3 is a present GI failure where the function cannot be restored with interventions. And the severest grade, grade 4, is defined as a dramatically manifesting GI failure, a condition that is equally to other organ dysfunctions, immediately life-threatening, for instance, high intra-abdominal pressure. So in general, improving the definition of GI dysfunction as a part of the multiple organ dysfunction syndrome or maybe to other scores like the sequential organ failure assessment score will establish the base in the future for setting up, for instance, a bundle of preventative or therapeutic measures and support the development of novel treatment strategies that may also apply to the response to nutrition support of the individual patient. I want to now just kind of move into the heart of the paper, which is about gastric residual volumes. And I believe that gastric residual volumes were first proposed as a way to really define tube feeding intolerance with the idea that if there's impaired motility, then there's increased aspiration risk. But we know that tube feeding intolerance is just one risk factor for aspiration. What other risk factors for aspiration should we be concerned with? Yes, so there are indeed several other major and so-called minor risk factors for aspiration. Major risk factors, for instance, involve neurologic deficits, if the patient is vomiting or not, or a very important factor is the posture of the patient. For instance, if the patient is lying supine or on his abdomen or if he is elevated head of bed as well as an underinflated tube cuff, for example. And minor risk factors are malposition of the feeding tube, prior abdominal surgery, pre-existing diabetes, and notably inadequate number of nursing stuff, which is, in my opinion, a very current problem we are faced with, not only in Germany, but also in the U.S., I think one of the other concerns we have about gastric residuals is that the gastric residual volume may be different depending on who draws up the residual position of the patient. So what other things really affect the accuracy or even the usefulness of using gastric residuals as a marker of feeding intolerance? 
And in place of that, are there other objective measures that maybe we can use in a clinical setting to assess tolerance of tube feeding? Yes, so as outlined in the table in the paper, there are several factors affecting the, let's say, validity of the gastric residual volume measurements that can be divided in first so-called tube-related factors, and that means that the type of the tube, the length, and particularly the diameter and position of the tube in the stomach are important factors. Then pertaining to the methodology used for gastric residual volume measurement, which are either gravity drainage or the aspiration technique used, then, of course, patient-related factors that pertain to the posture and, again, comorbidities, as mentioned before, for risk factors in regards to aspiration. And lastly, of course, investigator-related factors. For instance, the time and effort the individual investigator spends for the measurement technique. So in this respect, not only the volume, but also the quality it is the content and color of the gastric aspirate I would like to point out maybe of importance to early indicate feed intolerance, for instance, undigested enteronutrition solution in the case of a dislocated tube feed. And further, trying to answer your questions of other objective markers that can be used in the clinical settings is actually what everybody knows and all guidelines agree about although it's only based on expert opinion, is that a regular clinical evaluation of the abdomen should be used, including clinical examination, radiologic examination in selected cases, also the frequency of bowel movements and if the patient vomits, for instance, and should be part of a regular monitoring process. Ultrasound may be a technique that could be used as an alternative measurement technique to assess gastric residual volume, for instance. My personal experience has been that a lot of medical centers have actually removed routine gastric residual volume checks from their feeding protocols. Are there instances in which you think residuals should be measured? For instance, you mentioned in your paper that maybe residuals may not be an important marker in a medical ICU, but maybe in a surgical ICU. So what patients do you think are still at the highest risk where it would be valuable or beneficial to actually monitor gastric residuals? Definitely, in our opinion, surgical patients, patients with sepsis and shock or polytrauma, so let's say more severely ill patients are the patient categories which are at highest risk for feeding intolerance and also large gastric residual volumes. However, these patients were not truly represented in the available large randomized controlled trials in particular, the recent Nutria 1 study by the French group around uh, Rignier and uh, colleagues that compared not monitoring versus monitoring gastric residual volume. So in detail, whereas in the earlier published REGAIN study by the Spanish group, only 12 patients in total, 8% of all included patients had a surgical admission diagnosis, only about 7% in total, 32 patients were not medical patients in the French trial, and abdominal surgery was defined as an exclusion criteria in this trial. 
Further, these randomized controlled trials used experienced nursing staff and standardized protocols that implemented concepts to minimize the risk of pulmonary complications, including head of bed elevation, regular oral decontamination. As opposed to these randomized controlled trials, the so-called GRV-positive observational studies were performed in a majority of patients coming from a surgical ICU background, and no strict protocols were used in these trials reflecting more real-life data. So I believe there are particularly these patients at highest risk and surgical patients who might benefit from a regularly GRV monitoring. If we think it's important to measure residuals, the question also becomes at what limit should the feedings be held? So should it be 250 mils? Should it be 500 mils? Should it be just with one high level or should there be multiple high gastric residuals where we say, okay, the two feedings should be held or stopped? What's your opinion? Yeah, so that's a question that is probably ongoing for several years now. And looking at the current updated Canadian clinical practice guidelines, for instance, they recommend that gastric residual volume of either 250 or 500 mils is acceptable as a strategy where the clinician should start optimization strategies for delivering EN or intranutrition, for instance. Such a strategy include the use of prokinetic drugs or indication for placing small bowel tube. And so, here in our university medical center in Akil, we are actually using a threshold of 250 ml, which is quite a mix maybe from the Canadian practice guidelines and also the German guidelines who have recommended a threshold in abdominal surgical patients of 200 ml per single measurement. Another controversy kind of associated with that is what to do with the residual once it's removed. Some practitioners suggest that that residual should be replaced because it has electrolytes and nutrients and medications that the patients need. And others feel like that residual should be discarded because it's infectious. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so actually we didn't address this also controversial topic in our review, but it's correct, but in our local practice here in Kiel, we abstain from replacing residual volume and we discard it. And according to the volumes up to a certain threshold in critically ill adult patients, there's only one level two study available and the current Canadian clinical practice guidelines cannot give a strong recommendation whether to discard or not. But refeeding gastric residual volumes up to a maximum of 250 milliliters may also be acceptable with respect to the potential benefits of saving electrolytes and nutrients for the patient. But our local practice is that we are discarding the volumes. It's the risk that we as nutrition support practitioners are trying to avoid by checking gastric feeding residuals is aspiration. In what instances do you recommend that feeding tubes should just be placed post-pylorically and do you believe that post-caloric placement of feeding tubes does reduce aspiration. Yes, yeah, so in the latest systematic review and meta-analysis by Dr. Adam Dean from Adelaide, Australia, and Darren Haaland was a senior author on this meta-analysis that included data from 15 level 2 studies. Interestingly, small intestinal feeding when compared to intragastric feeding was associated with a reduction on the incidence of ICU-acquired pneumonia. 
and also an increased nutritional intake, what we were quite aware of from these trials so far, but it did not appear to be a major determinant of other outcomes, including mortality or length of stays in unselected critically ill patients. So actually the decision to implement small bowel feeding has to be made and what was concluded from this meta-analysis based on the institutional level, incorporating the feasibility, safety and delays and obtaining this access and identifying, of course, patients who are most likely to benefit from this route of feeding. In our local practice, again, here in our, and especially abdominal surgical ICU patients, we have the standard operating procedure that patients scheduled for major abdominal surgery directly receive a small intestinal tube intraoperatively. And of course, patients, for instance, with esophagectomy directly receive a percutaneous vaginal tube. And at least our clinical experience, and we have an ongoing weekend support by our endoscopists are quite good and these data from this latest systematic review are quite compelling in regards to reducing the risk of aspiration by small bowel feeding. Dr. Alcott, in Table 3 of your paper, you summarized the current guideline recommendations for gastric residual monitoring, and those are the recommendations from ASPEN, the Canadian Clinical Practice Guideline, and the German Society for Nutritional Medicine Guidelines. So which of those guidelines do you think seems to hit the mark with regards to what you found in your research on this topic? And again, what's kind of your practice with gastric residuals? Yes, so the Canadian Clinical Practice Guidelines and the guideline from the German Society for Nutritional Medicine are actually the latest ones, so they were just recently updated while, as far as I know, the recommendations from the American Association will be updated within the next year. So look out for their recommendation. I'm quite excited what they are going to state. So as mentioned before, as opposed to the Canadian guidelines that generally recommend to keep measuring a gastric residual volume and using a threshold of either 250 or 500 mLs in the general ICU population, the German guidelines recommend only to measure GRV in abdominosurgical patients on a regular basis, but not anymore in medical ICU patients, which is actually related to the aforementioned two large RCT that were predominantly conducted in medical ICU patients showing actually no benefit of regular GRV measurement. But as mentioned also before, one should keep in mind that following this recommendation, the local setting may ideally consist of an experienced nursing team, standardized nutrition protocol, including other safety criteria like semi-recumbent position and oropharyngeal hygiene measures, as was the case in the aforementioned RCTs, as well as proactive risk reduction strategies, including prophylactic, prokinetic therapy, and general feeding. With less experience and training, however, the same concept might create a significant risk for the patient, also in medical patients, in whom GI dysfunction is likely to occur, especially when these patients become more severely ill for whatever reason. So as we primarily treat surgical ICU patients, and I've stated this before, we keep on measuring GRV, looking both 
at quantity as well as quality of the residual and have set a threshold of 250 ml. Thus, we have established a mix of the German and Canadian guidelines. Before we conclude our conversation today, I just want to give you the opportunity to give us any final recommendations or words of wisdom that you'd like to share with our listeners today. So in my opinion, the principal paradigm, first do no harm, also applies to the monitoring of GI function as an integral part of the nutritional management as well. So general strategy according to the one-size-fits-all principle may often not hold true for the individual patient as we have learned from, example, the recent large nutrition studies. So in light of the reported high incidence of GI dysfunction occurring in up to 30% of our patients in the ICU and the true lack of alternative clinical useful measures, in my opinion, gastric residual volumes should still be regarded as one piece in the puzzle of monitoring GI function. And given that feeding protocols should be designed to be as safe as possible in the widest range of patients, we feel that we would err on the side of retaining GRV measurements in a feeding protocol operational in multidisciplinary ICUs where such measurements are the current standard of care. I want to thank you, Dr. Elke, for joining us from Germany to share your expertise. I invite all of our listeners to find out more about this topic and Dr. Elke's article in the February 2015 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for your invitation and have a good day.